Father, the Bible says that your word is a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. And we do pray that that may be true for us today. Lord, we, we pray that uh, especially where we have slipped into the shadows, where we have walked in darkness, that the life and the light of God may be clear to us. And we do pray that you may speak to us through your word and that your spirit may apply it to our minds and to our hearts. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Blaise Pascal was a great French philosopher living in the 1600s. And uh, he got it right when he said, I quote, All men seek happiness. This is without exception whatever means they employ. It's the cause of some going to war. It's the cause of some avoiding it. This is the motive of every man. Now, that's a, that's a profound statement, and that's why he's such a great philosopher, because what he's telling us here is that everybody's looking for the key to life. Everyone's looking for happiness. Everyone's looking for the purpose, the meaning. You get the same idea in science. Interesting that in Stephen Hawking's book, A Brief History of Time, this is what he says, and it's precisely the same idea. He says, the eventual goal of science is to provide a single theory that describes the whole universe. So there you have it. Stephen Hawking tells us that we're looking in science for a single theory that will explain everything. In uh, New Age spirituality, you get the same thing. Deepak Chopra said, uh, um, I quote, we must find out for ourselves that inside of us is a God in the embryo that wants to be born so that we can express our divinity. So Chopra is saying that the key to happiness, the key to, to, to life, the key to the purpose of life will be found within yourself. You've got to look within yourself to find the key. Oprah said, uh, the recognition of God is the recognition of yourself. You find it in the suicide note that says, what's the point? Now, the Apostle John, who was one of the 12 disciples, is writing this gospel. It's one of the source documents of the Christian faith, the gospels. If you haven't read them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, why don't you... Why don't you read them during this Christmas period? Here here are the source documents. Here are the eyewitness reports of who Jesus is and what he said and why he came. And the Apostle John is actually answering precisely this same question. And you pick it up right here at the beginning of his gospel in chapter 1, verse 1, where he talks about the word. And the word word is uh, is an English translation of the Greek word logos. Now, it's important that we understand John is writing to Greek readers steeped in Greek culture. And uh, from around 600 BC, the great Greek philosophers like Plato, Socrates, Aristotle talked about the logos. And the logos was something they were searching for. It was the soul of the universe. It was the ground of being. It was the reason for life, the key to life. Same idea that you get in Pascal and Hawking. 
and Deepak Chopra. And the Apostle John is writing here to a sophisticated, cynical, multi-faith Greek audience. And he says, I found the Logos. I found it. I found the, the soul of the universe. I found the ground of all being. I found the key to life and death. I found the reason for living. Chapter 1, verse 1. Notice with me there, and I do hope you have your Bibles open in front of you. Notice he says, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Then verse 14, there's a bombshell. It's the climax, the resolution. He says, and the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Extraordinary statement. In fact, John gives the, John gives the key away right there in verse 14. It's like, it's like reading a detective novel or a thriller. And because you can't stand the, the tension, you go to the last five pages and you find out who did it. Well, that's what John is doing here, verse 14. He tells us straight away. Let me tell you what the Logos is, who the Logos is. The Logos became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. It's quite stunning. Because John is saying, yeah, the key to life, the soul of the universe, is not found in Greek philosophy. It's not found in a scientific formula. It's not fine by looking inside of yourself. Don't spend too much looking inside of yourself. When I look inside of myself, I get depressed. I don't know about you. I mean, that's not the Logos. I can tell you that. No, he says the the Logos, the key to life, the soul of the universe, is found in a person, not a formula, not a self-help book. It's actually found in a person. The Logos became flesh and dwelt among us And we have seen his glory. So that means right at the middle of the universe, the center of the universe, at the center of the universe isn't a black hole. It's not a a philosophical theory. It's not a mathematical formula. It's not a self-help book. No, at the center of the universe is a person called Jesus, the Word, the Logos. So in, in Matthew's Gospel, Luke's Gospel, and we read Luke's Gospel earlier on, We have the biographical details of the birth of Christ, the virgin birth, the shepherds, the angels. In John's gospel, he doesn't go that route. No, he's speaking to a cynical Greek multi-faith audience, and he says, let me tell you the formula of the universe, the logos you've been searching for, the logos you've you've been debating for 600 years. Well, the logos became flesh. And dwelt among us. Extraordinary. Just one comment before we find out a little bit about the Logos. There's a commonality, uh, one wouldn't think so at first, but there's a commonality between Stephen Hawking and Deepak Chopra and Oprah and self-help books. The commonality is, is our search for God, our search for the Logos, our search for the formula 
There's a commonality. There's a ladder you must climb. And the one says five steps, and the other says ten steps, and the other says three steps, and the other says two ladders, and the other says four ladders. And John says, no, no, no. It's not what we do. It's what God has done for us. It's God's initiative. He took the initiative to search for us and to rescue us. Let's have a look at two things that we can learn about the Logos, about the Word, about Christ. And those three terms are the same thing, Logos, Word, Christ. Two things, what do we learn about Christ? And then secondly, how should we respond? First of all, what do we learn about the Christ, about the Logos, about the Word? Let's pick up a couple of things. The first thing we notice there in verse 1, right at the beginning, is that the Logos, the Word, Christ, is eternal. In the beginning was the Word. Now, we know that the Word is Christ who became flesh, but it actually is, this first verse is one of the most extraordinary statements in the Bible, isn't it? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John doesn't say, in the beginning, the Word came into existence. He doesn't say the Word came into being. He doesn't say the Word was created. No, the Word has been eternal. The Logos has been eternal. Christ has been eternal. So before Jesus was born as a human being in Bethlehem, he was alive. The pre-existent Christ, the Word, the Logos, it's only at Bethlehem that he took on human flesh. But before that, he's existed for all eternity. Try and think. It's a bit hard. Try and think of the beginning of the world. Whatever your theory is about the beginning of the world, everyone has the right to be wrong. Um, <laughs> think about the beginning of the world. Before the beginning was the word. That's what he's saying. It wasn't created. It didn't come into existence. You see, John was an Old Testament scholar. Remember the parallel between Genesis 1.1 and John 1.1. John knew his Old Testament. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God. John echoes that, and he's making a point. In the beginning was the Word. So the Word is eternal, just like God is eternal. Second thing we notice here is that the word is distinct from God. Christ is distinct from God. Notice that in verse 1 again. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. So there's the preposition with. So when you have that preposition with, you'll remember from, your, from English when you were at school, uh, it means that there are two entities, there are two bodies, there are two persons. The word was with God, which means that there is the word and there is God. There are two distinct entities. So what we actually have here is the first hint of the plurality of the Godhead, the first hint of the Trinity. So the Christian faith teaches, the Bible teaches quite clearly, that we believe in one God. We don't believe in three gods. We believe in one God made up of three persons. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. They are different, they are distinct persons, but they are made of one substance. They are all God. In fact, it's one of the most wonderful doctrines of the Christian faith. If you're a Christian, if you've, if you've 
if you're in Christ. It means that the Trinity was involved in your salvation. So imagine that. The Trinity, all three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, were involved in your salvation. God the Father planned your salvation. God the Son accomplished your salvation 2,000 years ago on the cross. And God the Spirit applies salvation in the here and now. Imagine all three persons of the Trinity who have been there forever. There's never been a time when they didn't exist. All three were involved in your salvation, bringing you to Christ. The Trinity also points us to the fact that, that God is love. Now, we all know that, and we can say that quite tritely, but it actually stems from the plurality of the Godhead. It actually stems from the Trinity. Because if you have a monotheistic God, that means if there's only one God, no different persons, as you have, say, in Islam or you have, say, in Buddhism, there's no, the, 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 the essence of God cannot be love when there's only one being. No, love happens when there's more than one person. So there are three persons in the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They love each other perfectly. And because we are made in the image of God, we have a longing for love because God is love. So it's a critical doctrine that we understand. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. They love one another perfectly. And that's our source of love. So at the center of the universe, once again, is not a philosophical formula, is not a, a 600-year debate on the Logos, is not a scientific formula, it's not a self-help book. No, at the center of the universe is love, which is found in God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Notice the third thing that we can learn about the Logos. Christ is eternal. Christ is distinct. Thirdly, just notice the end of verse 1. Christ is God. So it's helpful just to notice that. The word was with God, which means that there's a, there, there are separate persons in the Godhead, and the word was God. So not only did the word, the Logos, Christ, exist before creation, not only was the word, word, Logos, Christ, distinct from God, the word, the Logos, was God. It's one of the non-negotiables of the Christian faith. You actually can't be a Christian if you do not understand and believe and worship Jesus as God, God in the flesh. You can't be a Christian. You may be a nice person, you may be a religious person, you may be a church person, but you cannot be a Christian person unless you believe and worship Jesus as God. Now, I think there are many people in our culture, most people in South Africa think they're Christians. Most of them will think that Jesus was a great man. He brought us a great holiday, so let's be thankful. Um... He was a great teacher, great prophet, greatest man who ever lived. But I would guess that many of those same people would not actually be able to affirm that Jesus is and was God, which is actually the incarnation. God became flesh. That's what we remember at Christmas. 
The great miracle, the greatest miracle of all time, is that God became flesh and took on human form. Jesus was both God and man. It's not as if he was half man and half God. No, he was 100% God and 100% man, all in the same person. And you say to me, because you have a scientific background, you can't have 200%, and you are absolutely right, but we're talking about God. He doesn't fit our little categories and our little formulas. So what does it mean to us? Jesus, the God-man, the Logos, the Word. It means that when we pray to him, we pray to someone who has been here. He's taken on human flesh. It means that when we struggle with, with, with grief, with pain, if we've walked through great darkness this year, and uh, it's, it's been a rough year, and it's been a hard year, and we wonder sometimes, does anyone really understand? Well, Jesus does. He's been here. He knows what it's like living in this broken world. He understands when you're lying awake at night and the tears are flowing down your cheeks. He understands. If anyone understands, it's Jesus. There was only one innocent man in this world, in the universe, and we killed him. He understands injustice. He understands abuse. He understands grief and tragedy and crisis. And we cry to one who understands, who knows. We also cry to one who, who is God. So we cry to one who, who not only understands, but he has power. He has power to bring good out of evil. Isn't that extraordinary? The cross, what greatest evil that the most perfect man who ever lived, we killed him. And yet God brings good out of evil. God can bring light out of the deepest darkness. Perhaps in your extended family, in your, in your community, there's, there's great darkness and great sin and great evil. Well, Christ can bring light into the darkness. Christ can make something out of nothing. Christ can bring good out of evil because he's God. I mean, isn't that extraordinary? You see, sometimes we, we find ourselves hopeless and we just don't know what to do and where to turn. Well, turn to Christ. He not only understands more than you do, but he has power to bring good out of evil. Last principle. What do we learn about Jesus? Secondly, how do we respond? Well, John tells us in this passage that through the ages, uh, people have responded to Jesus in two ways. And they're quite obvious ways. It has to do with the word receive. So the first way people have responded to Jesus through the ages, we pick up there in verse 9. Chapter 1, verse 9. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. I mean, how extraordinary. Yeah, you have the light of the world. In him was life instead of death, life. Light instead of darkness. He created all things. He made the world. 
And yet through the ages, the majority of people would not receive him. In fact, the majority of people reject him. Perhaps you're new to our church, you're new to the Christian faith, perhaps you're listening on the website. And if you reflect on it, you don't really mind talking about church, you don't mind so much talking about God, you don't mind so much talking about spirituality, but you do mind when people talk about Jesus. You don't like people talking about Jesus or the cross. In fact, you might find it most, most uncomfortable. You're feeling most uneasy, even as I'm speaking now. Have you ever wondered why? So some of us, before we were Christians, you remember you were with a group of people, you, you're not a Christian, and one of your friends, one of your mates starts talking about Jesus, and you cringe. You cringe. You find it uncomfortable, and you slip away because you just don't want to hear about Jesus. Ever wondered why that is so? Well, John tells us. He tells us that by nature, from birth, we actually hate the light, and we love the darkness. Extraordinary, isn't it? In fact, that's why the world is like it is. Because from birth, men and women through the ages have hated the light and loved the darkness. So we shouldn't be surprised when the world is like it is. And the reason we hate the light is because the light exposes us. It sort of opens up the wound, cuts it. And that's why you slip away. You don't want to talk about Jesus or hear about Jesus. It's, it's, it's too close for comfort. It's, it's, it's like touching a nerve. What right does God have to touch that nerve? We hate the light. And we love the darkness because the light exposes our darkness. So the truth of the matter isn't that there are billions of people searching after God with their noses pressed against the window trying to get in. That is not the biblical picture at all. People are running away from God. They don't want to be close to the light. It's God who searches after us which is the message of the Incarnation. Notice the second response, and I'll end with this. I said the sermon would be short, but you know I don't always tell the truth. <laughs> Forgive me. So the first, first response, the first response is you don't receive him, and that is your choice. But be very clear, it's a choice. The second response is you receive him, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, so verse 11 is those who did not receive him, verse 12 is those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So how do you receive him? You receive him by believing in him. That's what, that's what John says, verse 12. You believe in Jesus the Savior, the Lord, the King, the Logos, the Word, the key to life and death. You worship him. You believe in him that he came, he was born to rescue us from our sin on the cross, 
Notice verse 13. It's quite extraordinary, actually. You can't actually make yourself a Christian. Ever thought about that? You can't make yourself a Christian. You don't become a Christian by being good. You'll never be good enough. No. You're not you don't become a Christian by blood or by family connections. You don't become a Christian by your good works or by the effort of your will or the strength of your will. No, you are born of God. It's a miracle. It's a miracle when someone becomes a Christian. There's no, there's no greater miracle when God... I mean, who can change someone's heart? Who can change your mind? I can't change my own heart. So then you said to me, but Martin, that, that sort of puts me in a difficult position because if I can't make myself a Christian, what, what must I do? The answer is, ask him. That's what you do. You don't make yourself a Christian because of your family connections, by being good, by being religious, by going to church. No, you become a Christian when you ask him to rescue you, to save you. And that's why he came, and that's why he's the word, and that's why he's the logos, and that's why he's the key to life and death, to rescue us from ourselves and our own darkness and to bring us into the light. Don't you want that? Wouldn't today be a good day to finally say, oh God, I'm tired of the shadows, the complicated shadows of my life. I'm tired of the guilt, the shame. I'm tired of the pointlessness. Will you rescue me? Will you make me a Christian? How do you do that? You do that by talking to God. And you do that through prayer. So let's pray together. There may be someone here this morning or listening on the website who, as we've been singing, as we've been praying, as we've been reading God's word, you have felt God the Holy Spirit press in upon your heart and your mind. Well, you can't make yourself a Christian. All you can do is ask for it. And you ask for it by saying, Oh God, forgive me for trying to make my own key to the world, to life. Will you rescue me? Will you make me a Christian? Will you adopt me into your family? Father, we thank you that when we call upon you for mercy, that you hear and you answer. And so, Father, will you go with us, help us to start this new year in Christ, to start this new year understanding the true logos, the true word, the true key to life, which is yourself. Lord, give us no peace and no comfort until we've submitted to Christ as King. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.